Father in heaven, we want to thank you, Lord, for the blessing to be able to come together and to study your words of truth. We thank you, dear God, for the things that you're showing us as it relates to the home. And Lord, I pray that you will please be with each and every one of my brothers and my sisters as we study together. We also ask that you'll please be with all the other speakers, their seminars as well. May your spirit be felt in those places as well. May we all draw closer to thee and to one another is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the realities of what's taking place uh, in the home today is we find that there's a lot of separation. A lot of separation. People are either separating one from another uh, physically through divorce, and then you have others who are separating legally, even though they have not gone through divorce, but nevertheless they have saw that they cannot coexist under the same roof. Then you have others who live in the home, but they're like ships passing through a night. They don't even talk to each other and so on. And none of these are a picture of heaven. You think heaven's a place where nobody talks to each other? Brothers and sisters, heaven is definitely not a place where every, no one talks to each other. Heaven's a place where there's tons of communication. And so it is that God says, that's what I want inside of the home. I want communication. I want happiness. I want all of these beautiful elements that we know makes up what are in our minds constitutes heaven. Now, did God have a plan for issues of separation? Did he have a plan for that? He did. Because does God understand separation? Yes, he does. Now, go to the book of Isaiah 59 and let me show you how I know that God understands separation. You see, in the beginning of time, God and man had communion one with another. In the beginning of time, God and man had communion one with another, but you'll find that what took place was there was a separation. And the Bible tells us exactly what caused the separation, and we find it in Isaiah, the 59th chapter, in verse 2. Notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 59 and verse 2. If you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says, but your iniquities have separated. So what did the iniquities do? It says, your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And it says, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So the Bible makes it very clear that it was iniquity, it's sin, that causes what? A separation. Now, did God want to once again have a reunion with mankind? What was the chief model that God used to have a reunion with mankind? What was it? Amen. Go to the book of Exodus 25. God had a chief model that he would use to help us understand how he was going to once again be reunited with his people. And it's interesting because in truth, when we understand the sanctuary, you will find that we can even understand the ministry of Jesus. It is possible to study the life of Christ, but without understanding it through the light of the sanctuary, we can miss the light of Jesus. There are many people today, I, I, was, I was at an organization called uh, Miracle Meadows, and when I was there working with the staff and the students, it was interesting because when I was there, I asked them a very important question. I said, listen, you know, how can we know what really makes Seventh-day Adventists who they really are? And one of the ways we found out is we looked at the sanctuary. Now, in the sanctuary, you have three areas, right? What are they called? What are they called? The courtyard, what's the next one? Holy place, what's the third one? Most holy place, right? Now, in order to get into the most holy place, you had to go through where first? You had to go through that courtyard. So the courtyard, now, 
in the sanctuary structure, you find that it was God's plan of how he was going to get rid of sin. Did you know that? Notice how the Bible brings this out. Exodus 25. Look at what it says. Exodus 25 and verse 8. If you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in Exodus 25 verse 8, it says, let them make me what? A sanctuary that I may do what? Dwell among them. So what's the reason, according to the verse, why God made the sanctuary? He wanted to dwell among us. Now, the word among in the Hebrew means in. So when God said make a sanctuary, he was saying, I want this to be a model structure on how I'm going to make man's heart my home. So therefore, it says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among or in them. Amen. Now, watch this. Now, question. Abiding somewhere and dwelling somewhere. Same thing or different? What do you say? How many by the raise of hands says different? Raise your hand. Abiding somewhere and dwelling somewhere. Same thing or different? How many say different? Okay. How many say same? How many say I have no idea? All right. Question. If I invited you to my home and I said, and you, let's say you rang my doorbell, you showed up at my house, and then I said, welcome to my dwelling place. What am I talking about? My home, right? Now, Let's say you showed up to my house and rang my doorbell again, and I said, welcome to my humble abode. What am I talking about? I'm still talking about my home. So can dwelling somewhere and abiding somewhere be synonymous? Yes. So therefore, I want you to catch this. God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among slash in them. And then I want you to see now what John 15 says. Go to John 15 and look at what the Bible says. So you can really, I want us to really understand this is the whole purpose of the sanctuary message. John 15, John the 15th chapter, you find that the Bible spells it out very clearly. In John 15, we can go ahead and consider verse 4. In John 15 and verse 4, it says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. So God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell or abide in them. And the verse says that we also abide in him. So there's a relationship going on. God is coming down unto us to bring us up to where he is. We are abiding in him. When you abide in him, you don't look at things the same. Go to the book of Ephesians chapter two. Let me show you what I mean. In Ephesians, the second chapter, you find that when we're abiding in Christ, things are different now. The Bible says that God wants to dwell among us, but we are to also abide in him. And now look at how the Bible spells this out in the language of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 and verse 6. In fact, we'll look at verse 5 and 6. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6, the Bible says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath done what? raised us up. So remember, God meets us where we are to bring us up to him. It says, and has raised us up together and made us sit together where? In heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is why it is not enough for God to just come down and dwell amongst us. We must also abide in him. When we abide in him, we are brought up to where he is and our minds are now dwelling on heavenly things. Are you following so far? That's why abiding in Christ is very imperative, because if we are abiding in him, that means our minds are not on the things of this earth anymore. 
Our minds are not focused on this earth. We will finally understand what it is to be pilgrims passing through. Are you following? So therefore, keep this in mind. God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And when God dwells among us, we also abide in him. And what is the end result of abiding in Christ? 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. Notice what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. What is the whole purpose of the sanctuary? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. If anybody teaches the sanctuary different from this point, they are not teaching the sanctuary. Notice what the Bible says. This is the whole point of the sanctuary services. The Bible says in 1 John 3 and verse 6, it says, Whosoever abideth in him, what's the next two words? Sinneth not. The whole purpose of the sanctuary is that God may dwell among us, that we may abide in him, that through abiding in him, we will stop doing the thing that caused the separation. The purpose of the sanctuary message is not simply to make us intelligent on understanding articles of furniture in its type and anti-type. It's deeper than that. God wants us to enter into an experience. Now, I told you that I was at Miracle Meadows. We taught this there. The students were really getting it, and it was powerful. But watch this. Here's something that we learned. You know, this is what makes us different from any other denomination in the world. Where do we find that God deals with sin and gets rid of it? Is it in the outer court, the holy place, or the most holy place? Which one is it? Amen. Very good. The most holy place. Now, in the outer court, what happens? What's the significant thing that happens in the outer court? The sacrifice. The lamb has to die, right? Now, who does the lamb represent? Jesus, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? Now, watch this. Here's the question. In the outer court, was the plan of salvation finished? Was it finished? So then here's my question. Was the plan of salvation finished at the cross? No. No. So then why do people keep saying that the plan of salvation ended at the cross? Do you know the number one differentiator between the Seventh-day Adventist church and any other denomination in the world is we believe that the plan of salvation continued beyond the cross where everybody else believes the plan of salvation ended at the cross. And that's why... Even when people study the life of Jesus, if they don't study it in the light of the sanctuary, they can even misinterpret Christ's ministry. So when I say that God gave the clearest model and example of how he's going to deal with the separation issue, there's no clear example that he gave us than the sanctuary. And when he gave us the sanctuary, when Jesus came, even Jesus was subject to follow the plan of salvation according to the sanctuary model. That's why even when he died, he died right on time in connection with the sanctuary services. When he ascended, he ascended right on time and was inaugurated as high priest. And the signal of it came down through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Everything happened right on time from Passover to Pentecost. And the list goes on. Even Jesus in his ministry was subject to how the plan of salvation is revealed through the sanctuary. Do you understand why Seventh-day Adventists, you, you and I must become seriously articulate on the sanctuary message. It's God's plan on how he's going to deal with the separation issue. Now, we started our message talking about how separation is very real, even in the home. 
So the same way that the sanctuary was designed to be a solution. In fact, go to Psalm 114. Let me show you something. Psalm 114. I wondered why did God use this language when he was talking about families? You know, when you look at the tribe of Israel, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Israel, you know, when you think about these tribes, all these tribes were just simply made up of families. Is that right? All these tribes, they were just made up of family members. Now, when you look at this, I want you to see how God referred to the family members or the family structure. He says in Psalm 114, and I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider verse 2. In verses 1 and 2, it says, When Israel went out of Egypt, it says, The house of Jacob from a people of strange language, it says, Judah was his what? It says, Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. So you'll find that God even uses the language of nations to also refer to a sanctuary. He says that Judah was my sanctuary, that place where I was going to dwell. And so you'll find that when we look at the home structure, we can also look at it as a sanctuary. And when we understand the sanctuary message, we understand that God gave it to us to show us how he was going to deal with the separation issue and to become one with mankind. Amen. So that means then that if we then can look at the home front and learn some lessons from the sanctuary, could it be that the sanctuary can teach us lessons on how the home can be united rather than separated? Yes? Amen. Yes. Now, we are not living in the time of the courtyard. We are not living in the time of the holy place. We are living in the time of what? The most holy place. Now, in that most holy place, there was something very powerful that God wanted to do. What did God want to do in the most holy place? Talk to me. He wanted to do what? All right. So he wanted to cleanse, he wanted to cleanse the sanctuary. Is that right? He wanted to get all the sin out of the sanctuary. Now, what has to happen in order for God to get the sins out of the sanctuary? What? what um, it's a very serious question. I'm asking a trick question. You should be able to know this. What does God have to do to cleanse the sanctuary from sin, to get all the sin out of the sanctuary? What does he have to do? What does he have to do? All right, go to Leviticus 16. Go to Leviticus, the 16th chapter. You sound like you're not sure. So let's go to the book of Leviticus 16. Let's let the Bible speak to us so that we may know. Because again, the same way God wants to deal with the sin issue in the sanctuary is the same way he wants to deal with the sin issue in our home sanctuaries. Are you following? So watch this. In Leviticus, the 16th chapter now, let's notice what the Bible says. Leviticus 16, and notice what it says in verse 16. Leviticus 16, verse 16. If you're there, say amen. Amen. The Bible says, and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the what? The uncleanness of who? Children of Israel. Question, why was the sanctuary dirty? It was because of the sins of who? Of the children of Israel. So if God wants to have a clean sanctuary, what does he have to do? Say it like you know it, brothers and sisters. What does God have to do in order to clean the sanctuary then? He got to clean the children up. He has to get sin out of the people so they can stop sending sin into the sanctuary. The whole reason the sanctuary got dirty was because the people were making it dirty by their choices of sin. Are you following? It's the only reason why it got dirty. That's why look at what it says in verse 30. This verse 30 has to happen first 
before Christ can cleanse the sanctuary. Notice what it says in verse 30, Leviticus 16 and verse 30. The Bible says, for on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to do what? To cleanse you that ye may be clean from how many? From all of your sins. Once God can get his people to enter into an experience with Christ where they have complete, total victory over sin, which means they don't go back to it anymore. That's when he can finally say the sanctuary clean. That's the work that Christ is waiting to accomplish right now. We're the holdup. Brother Waller talked about over 167 years now, 168 years. Here it is that Christ has been stuck in the most holy place. And the only reason why is because of us. He wanted to finish the work. It's us that's slowing him down. Why? Because we love sin more than Jesus. We're loyal to what we love. So what Jesus wants to do is he wants to reveal himself to us in such a way that by beholding him, we would become changed. And as a result of loving him, we would keep his commandments and stop breaking them. Are you following so far? I want you to write this down in your notes. One of the clearest statements in the spirit of prophecy of how an individual enters into the experience of victory over sin. Please write this down. This is a very powerful quote. I want you to commit it to memory, and I want you especially to enter into the experience as I'm striving to every day. It says in Desire of Ages, page 668, one of the most powerful quotes that I've ever read in the spirit of prophecy on victory over sin. It says in Desire of Ages 668, when we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our lives will be a life of continual obedience. Did you know right now our lives are, are not lives of continual obedience, right? Our lives are like a roller coaster. One minute we're obedient, 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 disobedient. And then we go obedient, 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 and disobedient. And it's, it's all this roller coaster up and down of broken obedience, right? God says, my solution to that is, I'm quoting, when we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our lives will be a life of continual obedience. Here's the next part of the quote. It says, through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. That's your solution to victory over sin. It's right there. It's not that man cannot have it. It's just that the way we're trying, we keep failing. When you know God as it is, you're privileged to know him. Your life will be a life of continual obedience. And when you appreciate the character of Christ and when you and I have true communion with God as we should, it says sin will actually become hateful to us. And that's what gets people to stop sinning. I want you to think about anything that you hate right now, anything you truly hate. You can even think of food you hate. You know, one thing I hate, okra. I don't like okra. I don't, I, I, you could put a big plate of okra in front of me. I'm not even 0.1% tempted to eat it. Are you following? You know why? Because I hate it. It is absolutely disgusting to me. So I don't struggle not messing with okra. Why? Because I hate it. Can't stand it. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. And when you hate something, you don't want to mess with it. You won't want to mess with it. You're going to cling to Jesus. 
And so you'll find that God says, this is what I want to do. In this sanctuary structure, I want to get rid of sin. And it is done specifically in the most holy place. And Christ says that I need the cooperation of the people. So there is no victory over sin without cooperation from the human agent. You heard Brother Waller talk earlier today about Hebrews 11 and verse 7. One of my most favorite verses in the Bible. It talks about righteousness by faith in one verse. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, built an ark, prepared an ark. It says, to the saving of his household, whereby he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Righteousness by faith is not that divinity does it all and you and I just do nothing. Neither is righteousness by faith that we do it all and ask God for help when we need it. Righteousness by faith is cooperation between humanity and divinity. God provides the power. God provides the resources. God provides everything you need, but you and I must exercise it. That's your job. That's my job. So therefore, when we look at this principle, even in the sanctuary, we learn that there has to be a cooperation. God can't clean the sanctuary until he can get the people to cooperate with him. Amen. All right. Good. Now, understanding that, remember, Judah was considered to be like a sanctuary. Now, because of that, that means that there's some lessons that God wants to teach us that we can actually learn from the sanctuary that can help us with the separation issues that we have in the home. Husbands who don't talk to wives, wives who don't talk to husbands, all of these different problems. And I'm especially going to focus on husband and wife. The reason I'm doing that is because they're the foundation of the home. They're the foundation of the home. We're told in Adventist home, page 16, it says to a large extent, It says the husband and wife or the mother and father, they are the ones that will determine the atmosphere of the home. And then it goes on to say, and when husband and wife harbor difference against one another, it says the children will partake of the same spirit. There are many a times that our youth are suffering with demonic oppression because of what the parents allowed to come into the home. Don't ever forget that the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says that the devil walketh about as a what? Roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, when's the last time you study how roaring lions attack animals? You will find that, number one, they function in stealth mode. They try to blend in the environment, right? Number two, when the lion finally takes its launch, does the lion go after the strongest gazelle or does it go after the youngest and weakest one? It always goes after the youngest and weakest one, right? So when we open the doors of our home to satanic influences, what do you think the devil's doing? He's looking at the parents or the husband and wife arguing with each other, and he moves them aside, and he looks for the weakest one in the house, which is typically the children. And he goes after them, and he takes possession of them. So therefore, we must be mindful of this, and this is why I'm going to focus on the husband and wife specifically, dealing with lessons from the most holy place. Now, in inspiration, we're told something very powerful. Look at this quote here. We are told there is a what circle? It says there is a sacred circle around every family which should be preserved. And it says no other one has any right in that sacred circle. Does that include mother-in-law? Absolutely. The Bible says in Genesis 2.24, it says that these two shall cleave one to another and they shall leave their home and become one flesh. Once that husband and wife get married... Mother and father-in-law, it is no longer your business what goes on in that circle. You got to let them go. You got to let them go. You have to let them go. Amen. 
Don't be at variance with God, brothers and sisters. That's a losing battle. Don't fight God. God says that's a sacred circle. Nobody else belongs in there. Nobody else. That's the immediate family circle now. We have to understand. That's why whenever, whenever someone gets married, that question is, who gives this person away? When you're giving that person away, that means that all of those times where you were able to get in their business and understand every little thing about them, you can't do that anymore. You're giving them away. You're handing them off into their new home now. You need to let them solve their problems and not run to you to get every little problem solved and bring you in their business. Families, there's a sacred circle and no one else is allowed in there. Keep them out. Keep them out. Now, who is this sacred circle really talking about? Look at the rest of the quote now. The husband and wife should be what? All to each other. You see, if the husband and wife are all to each other, that's more the reason not let anybody else in your business. Because the husband and wife are all to each other. Are you following? All right. So therefore, it says the husband and wife should be all to each other. It says the wife should have no secrets to keep from her husband. Did you know that? Do you know that there's not supposed to be any secrets that a wife has that their husband doesn't know about? And that your friends know about, co-workers know about, and other people know about? There's not supposed to be any secrets. It goes on to say, the wife should have no secrets to keep from her husband and let others know, and the husband should have no secrets to keep from his wife to relate to others. This is God's instruction, sacred circle. You remember that in the most holy place, it was a very intimate connection. It was just the high priest and God, the presence of God right there. Nobody else was allowed in there. If anybody else tried to come in just to take a peek of what's going on in the most holy place, they would die. You don't enter into that sacred circle. Is that right? And so it is that you'll find that the most holy place, we can learn lessons. There was a very intimate connection between the highest aspect of the human family, which in our case is the husband and wife. In the Bible, it was the high priest. And so you'll find that now it says that they are to be all to each other. Now watch this. The heart of his wife should be the grave for the faults of the husband. Did you know that? So often we talk about our husband's fault. You know, my husband does this. My husband does that. My husband does this. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says the dead know not anything. <laughs> your heart is supposed to be a grave for your husband's fault. And only Jesus has resurrection power. We should not be trying to resurrect the faults of others and take it out of the graves of our heart and impart it to other people. Are you following? It says the heart of his wife should be the grave for the faults of the husband, and the heart of the husband, the grave for his wife's faults. Never. How many times? Never. It says, never should either party indulge in a joke. Now, did you notice that it didn't say uh, in a series of jokes? It says in a what? In a joke. Go to the book of Ephesians 5. Let me show you something. Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, this is from Adventist Home, page 177. In the book of Ephesians, chapter uh, 5, I want you to see this now. I mean, God is serious when he says not once. I mean, he actually means it. And he didn't just express this through the inspired writings of Ellen White. He expressed it through the inspired writings of the direct Bible. And you'll find that in Ephesians, chapter 5, and verse 1, notice what it says. It says, be ye therefore what? Followers of God as their children. And it says, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. But now he transitions. Verse three, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once. Let it not be how many times? Let it not be once. 
named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness. So watch this. This is continuing of things that should not be once named amongst the saints, right? Verse four, it says neither filthiness nor what? Foolish talking nor jesting. Do you see how God is serious? He says, I don't want it to even be once done. And we find that jesting, joking around, this was one of the things that God says, I don't even want this once to be named amongst my saints, especially when you're dealing with the husband and the wife. Never should either party indulge in a joke at the expense of the other's feelings. This is the quotation to back up what Brother Wallace said earlier today when he talked about how husbands don't go around making fun of your wife, talking about she's overweight and this, that, and the other, and so on and so forth. This is the point. Many times people make jokes about these things, and we can do it innocently. That's why God is making us aware of this, so we don't have to do it anymore. Amen? It says, never should either party indulge in a joke at the expense of the other feelings. Never should either the husband or wife in sport or in any other manner complain of each other to others for frequently indulging in this foolish and what may seem perfectly harmless joking will end in trial with each other and perhaps estrangement. I have been shown that there should be a sacred shield around every family. I remember one time I had a friend who was, his name was uh, Damien, very light-skinned brother. He was a black man, but he was very, very light-skinned. And I remember that Damien and I, you know, we would talk about different things. And uh, because he was very light-skinned, when we were kids, I've, I've known him for years. I mean, we, we went to high school together. In high school, a lot of people used to call him a white guy. They'd say, oh, white boy, this, that, and the other. And we went to an all-black school. So for him, this was a very embarrassing experience that people kept calling him that because there was all sorts of bigotry and all these problems in our schools. Now, I remember that we made jokes about it. We would say, oh, man, you know, we talk about black people and we say, well, you know, Damien, you're not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not part of this, so you can wait over here. And we would always just joke around with him to make it seem like he wasn't really a truly black person because he was so light-skinned. This was wicked. This was wrong. But you know what he did? You know one of the things that motivated us to keep doing it? Every time we cracked that joke, guess what he did? He laughed with us. So therefore, when we would tell the joke and we're laughing to spare himself from unnecessary embarrassment, he would go ahead and he'd start laughing with us. So we've said his laughter is an endorsement. So therefore, we kept doing it. One day, he discovered he had the gift of poetry. And as he was doing his poems and writing them, he wrote a poem called The Diary of a Light-Skinned Black Man. And he said, hey, Dwayne, I want you to listen to this. And I listened to his poem, and he talked about how he was made fun of as a child or as a youth. He was made fun of by his friends and called all these names. And he said, many a times I would laugh in their faces when at times I would go home and I'd be crying because I was hurt. And that was the first time I said, wait a minute, I didn't know that. And I called him, I said, D, I said, do you mean to tell me that you were offended every time we did this? This is how you felt? And he was like, yeah, man, that's how I felt. And I said, man, I'm sorry. I, you know, and we never, ever made those jokes again. We were all immature and pretty ridiculous, quite honestly. But the Lord um, you know, blessed many of us to mature. But here's my point. Do you know how many times, husbands, you can make a joke about your wife and she'll laugh with you but be hurting on the inside? Do you know how many times, wives, you can make jokes about your husband and he'll laugh with you, but on the inside, he actually didn't appreciate that at all. And he wished you, didn't, you never said that. Parents, it's possible that you can say things about your children and they may laugh. But in their hearts, they're saying, you know, I wish they never said that because that actually really hurts. And so we find that never should we do this. There's a sacred circle, brothers and sisters, 
Be mindful of how you affect people. Now, understanding this, what was the key thing that was in the most holy place? What, 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 what was the key uh, article of furniture that was in there? Okay, it was the Ark of the Covenant, right? What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? What was, what was the chief item? I, I'd love to talk more about the pot of manna and the, and the rod that budded, but I'm going to have to get into that at a different time. But what, what's the key thing that was in that Ark? It was obviously the Ten Commandments, right? Now, the Ten Commandments was a standard. Now, that standard was a standard of judgment. Is that right? It was, it was a standard God was using in the judgment, correct? The Bible says in James 2.12 that we shall be judged by the law of liberty. Now, the law of God did two things. It revealed what sin was, Romans 3.20, and it also revealed the character of God, Romans 7.7, 7, compared with several other verses. In Romans 7.7, 7, it says the law is holy, just, and good. You take Romans 7.7, 7, the law is holy. You take 1 Peter 1, 15, 16, God is holy. It says in Romans 7, 7, the law is just. You take Deuteronomy 32, 4, and you find God is just. You take Romans 7, 7, the law is good. You take Matthew 19, 17, it says God is good. So the law is a reflection of God's character. Amen? Amen. So therefore, we find that the law serves two purposes. It gives us things that we should not do. It helps us understand what we should not do. Therefore, Paul says that I had not known sin but by the law. But it also helps us know what to do. It is something that is designed to help us see what we should do and what we should be. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, the question is this. If the law of God was in the most holy place, and if the sanctuary is also can be a lesson book for us of how the home should be structured, then what do you think every home should have? Every home should have laws. Every home should have laws. In other words, if people are courting or if people are considering marriage, one of the things that would have to be considered are what are the laws that would govern our household? Now, the question is this. When doing that, I wonder who the lawmaker is. Did you know there are three things that inspiration tells us that every husband is supposed to be? You know what the three things are? You want to write this down. Number one, he is to be a lawmaker. The husband is to be a lawmaker, the husband. Look at this. All members, how many members? All. It says all members of the family center in the father. Center in who? The father. It says all members of the family center in the father. He is the what? He's the lawmaker. Illustrating in his own manly bearing the what? Sterner virtues energy, integrity, honesty, patience, courage, diligence, and practical usefulness. So the inspiration lets us know that the husband is supposed to be the law maker of the home. So when you establish a home, if you really want to do your best to preserve, remember the purpose of the sanctuary was to show men how to get victory over sin and not to go back into it, right? So it is that in the home sanctuary, we want to make sure that laws are set up so that we can know how the home should be governed so that we make sure that there is no undue separations taking place in the home, undue battles and so on. That's what happens when a home has laws, things that govern the household. You go to most people's homes today and there's no laws there. It's almost like go for broke, do what you will, do what you want. And that is literally inviting in many respects hell in our homes. It goes on to tell us that not only is the husband supposed to be the lawmaker, but he's supposed to be the head of the household. That was another thing. So the husband is the lawmaker, but he's also the head of the household. I'll give you the quote in just a moment where this comes from. The head of the household, it says, 
The husband and father is the head of the household. It says the wife looks to him for love and sympathy and for aid in the training of the children. Brothers and sisters, it is not enough to have the wives do all the work. It is not enough to have our dear sisters doing all the work, even if they do homeschool or whatever the case may be. The husbands are supposed to, even though, because many a times guys can uh, try to, you know, dismiss themselves because they say, well, you know what? I don't have to do this because I already work. That's if the wife is home, the mother is home. Many a gentleman will say, well, I already work and I already have a job, so that's my job. So your job is to take care of the children and so on. But does inspiration agree with that? No, it does not. Inspiration makes it very clear. Adventist home, page 211. It says the wife looks to him for love and sympathy and for aid in the training of the children. And this is right. The children are his as well as hers. And he is equally interested in their welfare. The children look to the father for support and guidance. Now, brothers and sisters, a lot of young people today don't look at their fathers for support and guidance. And the reason why is because there are very few fathers that have an actual relationship with their children. Now, God is encouraging us that he's saying that if you really want to protect the sanctuary home, he says there must be a relationship. You see, there was an intimate communion because the very Shekinah glory was in the most holy place. Is that right? The very presence of God. And so it is that the presence of God should be in our hearts where we are able to dwell with our children and with our spouses. We should be able to have communion with them. It's not enough to be around our children. We must spend time with our children. There's a difference. I remember a time when I used to think I was spending time with my children because they were in the room over there and I was in the room over here on my computer doing work. And I thought, and I lied to myself and said, I'm spending time with my children. And then we wonder why young people many a times when they see their friends, oh, they want to hang out with them and spend all their time with them and they want to dress like them, act like them, walk like them and talk like them. We wonder why is it that our young people do that? Why is it they don't want to dress and act and walk and talk like their fathers? It's because the fathers don't have time for them that the other friends do. So God says, listen, spend time with your children. Let them look to you as a support and guidance so that they may be able to say, Dad, I need some counsel. I need some instruction. Notice. It says the children look to the father for support and guidance. He needs to have a right conception of life and of the influences and associations that should surround his family. That's why tomorrow we're going to be talking about the importance of country living. Tomorrow we're going to hit that thing on the topic of country living. So there have been so many strange views that have been put out on country living that I believe that because I often wonder, brothers and sisters, can, I, can, I, can we talk? Can we keep it real? I'm confused. We have a body of believers today that say we believe the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And I'm like, all right. What does Daniel and Revelation tell us is getting ready to come? Oh, a final crisis is getting ready to come. Okay, what's that final crisis known as? Oh, that's known as the passing of the National Sunday Law. I mean, we know it. We know it. We read all the quotes and everything. We listen to all these great evangelists and speakers and teachers who are teaching these present truths and all this. Now watch this. Brothers and sisters, you can see that this world is fully prepared to pass a Sunday law. America is absolutely ready. The only reason a Sunday law has not passed is because God is thinking about you and I and how unprepared we are. That's the only reason it hasn't passed. The world is ready. Now watch this. We say 
we believe that a final crisis is coming. We buy the DVDs, we listen to the tapes, and we go through all this stuff, right? But then we find ourselves still stuck in the cities when God told us. You know what? We were having worship with my children, and one time I told my children, to run upstairs and grab my coat. So I asked my daughter, Jada, I said, Jada, can you go upstairs and grab my coat? So Jada goes upstairs, and she just grabs my coat and then comes back downstairs with it, right? So I said, thank you very much. Now, I said this, I said, Jada, do me a favor. Go upstairs as fast as possible and get my coat for me. Do you think Jada did this again? What do you think she did? Jada was like, and you know, she, she, she just took off. You following? She took off. Now, here's my point. Jada understood the difference between doing something and doing it as fast as possible. You know, it was in 1885 that Ellen White said, the time is coming when God's people need to get out of the city and get into the countries. In 1900, she said, the time has come now, 1885, the time is coming. 1900, the time has come. She then says, get out of the cities as fast as possible. Do you know the average Seventh-day Adventist, and I'm not talking necessarily about people who are broken, hurting, and can't do anything. I'm talking about Seventh-day Adventists even with money. Do you know many of them are still looking for houses in the cities? They're still looking for homes in suburbs. And I'm thinking to myself, these are the same people who said that they believe a crisis is coming. And we forget that the practical means of how God told us to prepare for the crisis is he said, get out of the cities, get into the country, get some land so you can grow some food for the time of buying and selling is going to become a very serious issue. Now, some of us don't even know how to fast for a day. What do you really think is going to happen when a Sunday law passes and they tell you that the only way you can eat is that you got to receive the mark of the beast? And if the only thing you know how to rely on right now is Mr. Visa, Mr. Uh, uh, Brother Discover, and Mrs. MasterCard, if that's the only way you know how to live is by all these credit cards and debit cards, what happens when they shut all that stuff off and you have absolutely no way to get food? Oh, well, my bread and my water shall be sure, according to Isaiah 33 and verse 16. Well, here's the problem. Read it right. It says that your bread and your water shall be sure when you are hiding under the munition of rocks. That's dealing with the time of what Jeremiah 35 through 7 calls the time of Jacob's trouble. Before the time of Jacob's trouble, which is after the close of probation, when the plagues are falling, before that time, brothers and sisters, how are you going to take care of yourself? God has given practical instruction. And that's why I'm telling you, tomorrow we're going to hit that country living thing. We're going to look at it from all of us. Why does God tell us to do it? What is country living? How do you know a country property versus a non-country property? We're going to hit that thing. I've been waiting for this. Seriously, I've been waiting for this. This is one of my topics that I've been, I've been waiting for an opportunity to get this before a mass group like you all. Brothers and sisters, notice what it says. 
The father must have a right conception of life and of the influences and associations that should surround his family. Tomorrow when we deal with the young people, we're going to talk about associations. One of the greatest killer of our young people today are their associations, who they hang around with. And some of the most dangerous people to hang around with are those who name the name of the remnant. I'm serious. Some of the most dangerous situations can come even from those who profess to be seven-day Adventists. So we really got to look at this thing. Now, it goes on to say, above all, he should be controlled by the love and fear of God and by the teaching of his word, that he may guide the feet of his children in the right way. So this is talking about the head of the household. Now, the Bible says in Colossians 1 and verse 18, let's turn there very quickly, Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to bring out some final points, and I know we got, yeah, I was about to say, I know we got just a few more minutes here. Colossians chapter 1. What we're going to do, we have another open session where I'm going to pick, I'm going to continue on this study. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look very deeply into several phases of the most holy place and seeing how does it apply to you and I practically today as it relates to husband and wife. So it looks like we're going to have to cover that point tomorrow because I saw I just had 10 minutes and there's no way I'm going to cover it in, those, in that time frame. In Colossians chapter 1, for there say amen. The Bible says in Colossians 1 and verse 18, it says, and he is the head, talking about Jesus, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Christ is known as the head of the church. God has set up the house band, the husband, to be the head of the household. Christ is represented as the one who sacrificed all. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and so on. And he humbled himself. He became a servant. So therefore, again, our sisters should not have a problem as it relates to the submission point when the husband is functioning as the chief servant in the home. Amen? It should not create a problem. So therefore, being the head of the household is not the banging on the chest saying, do what I say, when I say, how I say. We know that being the head of the household means to be the chief servant. Amen? So therefore, we must be a lawmaker. We must be a head of the household. But we also must be the priest. Now, look at this. It says in Adventist Home 2.12, the father is in one sense the priest of the household. Was there a priest in the most holy place? Yes, there was. Did the priest have to represent the people? Yes. So there was a high level of responsibility on the spiritual condition of the people based on the work that the priest was doing. Is that right? And so it is that there's a high responsibility on the spiritual condition of the household based on the spiritual condition of the husband. Are you following? Because there's a lot of brothers today that we do not necessarily make God first, last, and best in our lives. Sometimes it's our jobs, it's our hustling for money so we can make cash to take care of our day-to-day responsibilities. But don't ever forget 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. Turn there with me. Because many a times we say, oh, I have no time to go ahead and provide, uh, you know, all these things for my household because I'm busy out there trying to chase cash so I can go ahead and take care of the temporal needs. But remember that 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, if we carefully study it, we would find that God wants to make it clear to yours and my heart that there is a provision that we are to make as it relates to the temporal needs of life. But there's more than that. It says in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, but if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith 
and is worse than an infidel. Now, when the Bible says that, it is not talking about providing for his own house in the means of just finances. It's talking about functioning in the spiritual capacity to provide what is needed to make sure that the house is spiritually grounded. So when a man is too busy because he's chasing dollars to go ahead and take care of the household, but he's not being a priest of the home, making sure that wife has that walk with God, making sure that children have that walk with God. Brothers and sisters, we are behaving worse than infidels in the eyes of God. And God says that we must be about our father's business and make sure that we are providing not just for the temporal needs, but primarily for those spiritual needs, making sure that that household is a place where the angels love to dwell because the family unit is rooted and grounded in Christ. It says the father is in one sense the priest of the household laying upon the altar of God the morning and evening sacrifice. It says the wife and children should be encouraged to unite in this offering and also to engage in the song of praise. That's why a lot of times the father, we, many a times we may have to lead. Many a times we're going to find ourselves having to lead. There can be the other family members, even sometimes wives. They may be saying, well, let's go ahead and do this and do that. But when the father should, because he has that spiritual connection with Jesus, he should be able to see, wait a minute, we didn't get our connection first with this. Is it possible to get up in the morning and start hustling and forget that you need to take time for Jesus? Is it possible to happen today? Yeah. Of course it is. Is it normal? Brothers and sisters, God wants to let us know this is the common thing. Do you know the average Seventh-day Adventist home, there is no family worship. There is no family worship. Husbands and wives get up and, and, and maybe they'll say a prayer. And then before you know it, they're on their way to go ahead and go to that job to make that six, seven figure, five figure, whatever your figures are or whatever that income, because we believe that's our responsibility. But brothers and sisters, that morning and evening sacrifice, that is something that we cannot afford to let a day go by. Remember, Mary and Joseph took their eyes off of Jesus for a moment and it took them three days to find him. We can take our eyes off of Jesus just for a moment and it can be a long period of time before we get reconnected to him and a lot of sinful practices and irreversible things can take place in our households. So therefore, God encourages the husband. He says, morning and evening, the father as priest of the household should confess to God the sins committed by himself and his children through the day. That's what Job did. It goes on to say those sins which, has, which, which have come to his knowledge and also those which are secret of which God's eye alone has taken cognizance should be confessed. This rule of action zealously carried out by the father when he is present or by the mother when he is absent will result in blessings to the family. That means that there are times, mothers, you may have to step in. Write this down. Education, page 250. In the book Education, page 250, it says that, did you know that before sin, it was actually God's desire that the household would work together, worship together, have recreation together, and study together. Did you know that that was God's plan before sin? You read that in Education 250. It says before sin, it shows that God's plan was that the family actually worshiped together, had recreation together, studied together, and worked together. God believed in family business. Amen. Now, she says it is because of sin that now fathers have to many a times leave their homes and sometimes be away for days. I know truck drivers. 
Men who have to leave their homes. And sometimes they, they leave on Monday and they don't come back till Friday. And she says it was in love and mercy that God put a check on the demands of work by giving the Sabbath. Amen. You know, that was one of the reasons why God gave the Sabbath was to preserve the household. You know that the household and the Sabbath are indissolubly linked. Those are the two holy institutions that were brought into existence before sin came into this world. And here it is that it was not God's plan. It was not God's plan for the husband to be away so long. But because of sin and all the demands of life, now sometimes husband has to be away for a long time. If husband is away, wives, that is not the opportunity to drop the ball and say, oh, well, he's gone and I don't know what to do. It says this rule of action zealously carried out by the father when he is present or what? By the mother when he is absent. If the father is not there because he cannot be there, then that's, mother, when you have to go ahead and you must now lead the children to Jesus and enter into that worship experience and bring out the morning and evening sacrifice. And what is the answer? It says it will result in blessings to the family. It says the father represents the divine lawgiver in his family. He is a laborer together with God, carrying out the gracious designs of God and establishing in his children upright principles, enabling them to form pure and virtuous characters because he has preoccupied the soul with that which will enable his children to render obedience not only to their earthly parent, but also to their heavenly father. Now, as we prepare... Tomorrow, we're going to zoom in even more on lessons from the most holy place and the husband and the wife. Thus far, we found that the sanctuary was God's plan to once again take that which was separated and bring them back together by getting rid of sin. God says, I consider homes also my sanctuary. He wants his presence to be there. And what God wants to do is take families who have separated one from another, whether it's emotionally separated or physically, and how to bring them back in union with themselves. One of the means that God used in the most holy place was he used the law. The law. There must be laws that governs a home. And therefore, we notice that the law shows us what sin is, but the law also shows us what the character of God is, what we should be doing. We discovered that there is a lawmaker in the home, and it's who? The husband. But along with him being a, a lawmaker, he is also two more things. What were they? The head of the household and the priest of the home. Amen. So thus far, that's where we have stopped. Tomorrow, we pick back up on this and we finish this study out tomorrow. Then the next study is going to be dealing with the children. How do we work with our children and get our children to learn to love Jesus? And then we will obviously close where we're going to deal with where does God want that home to be? And we're going to deal with that message of country living. So we praise God for this opportunity. Let us close with prayer on this point. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you again for helping us all to see that there are lessons in the sanctuary that we can apply them to the sanctuary home structure. And we're thankful that there are lessons in the most holy place that we can look at and allow it to be a lesson for us to know how many of us should govern our homes. Father, I pray that you will help every man who is a husband in this room to realize that you have called all of us to be lawmakers, heads of our households, and priests of our home. And Father, if we have not taken upon ourselves these duties, Lord, help us today that we will, by your grace and power, learn what it is to be a lawmaker, learn what it is to be a priest, and to learn what it is to also be that head of the household in the order of Christ. And ultimately, may it all help us 
that instead of separation, there would be union within the household. For this is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels' messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh-day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. That's www.pthministries.com. Or you can call us at 770-274-9537. That's 770-274-9537. May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha.